Welcome to Doing Well, Feeling Fine. I am Boris Avenstein. This week, I'm talking to Professor Angela McRobbie. Angela, who's originally from Glasgow in Scotland, lives and works in London and Berlin. She's an academic researcher, lecturer, commentator, and absolutely tireless networker, bringing together different generations of thinkers, researchers, practitioners, and policymakers. Her academic research spans around four decades and is influenced by the work of Stuart Hall and the British sociologists of the Birmingham School. Angela explores how culture and media shape our sense of self. She studies creative industries and labor in the arts, in fashion and music. A focus on feminism and a critique of capitalism and its consequences has been core to her work right from the beginning. But having said this, Angela has a more nuanced reading of culture and its potential than simply to reduce it to consumerism or to market ideology. In our conversation, we talk about the idea of agency and the productive uses to which culture is put by its consumers. Culture, and especially subculture, can provide building blocks for shaping our sense of self. This creates belonging, but also distinction from groups in society. There are countless examples. At the broadest levels, an interest in novels, art, and classical music draws a line around the upper middle class habitus, as detailed in the work of French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu. There are sports subcultures too, just think of the near fanaticism of road cycling or crossfit. Then there are musical subcultures over the decades, from hip jazz aficionados to rockers to teds and mods and punks and more recently ravers and hip-hoppers. You get the picture. Where mainstream society may appear mundane and predictable, subcultures offer spaces to reinvent oneself, to experiment with a more exciting version of one's own identity. This potential to inspire is valuable. It attracts customers who want to participate and companies who want to bottle the essence of subcultural energy. Subcultural capital, as it's sometimes called, know-how, know-what and know-who are valuable. The sneakers, which mysteriously strike us as cool, channel the effortless street style of hip-hop subcultures from the 80s and 90s. The plateau boots, cropped tops and flared trousers hark back to the heady days of 90s rave culture. Punks, mods, even goths still provide the aesthetic vocabulary for many trends in music, art and fashion. If you don't believe me on that last one, just run a Google search for goth and Balenciaga. Most of us play with this at a superficial level. A few pieces in our wardrobe, an occasional film or concert, a playlist enjoyed with friends, maybe a club night or a lost weekend in London, Paris or New York. But some want to immerse themselves more fully and seek careers in the creative industries. In this episode, Angela and I talk about how to study subculture. We look at its productive uses. We talk about the trend in the 90s that turned subcultural worlds into labor markets with the rise of the cultural industries, especially in London. But we also talk about some of culture's failings, the many who have to eke out a precarious existence in low-paid freelance jobs, the many who never really found a good subcultural solution to their real-world problems. I'm thinking, for example, of punks who, while stylish, provocative and artistic, in the end never really could answer the question of what to do and how to make a living 
on the margins of society. In this first clip of our conversation, we go back to Angela's early days as a researcher, joining the Birmingham School, who essentially pioneered the systematic analysis of the symbols of subculture. I remember interviewing with one university in the UK in a sociology department, and I came with a proposal to do something on the transformative qualities of popular culture. Yeah. And they raised their eyebrows. Yeah. And they said, this is the kind of institution that tends to study why the children of single parents are more likely to be single parents themselves. Yeah. And exploring any sort of politics nested within culture. Yeah felt really a bit of a stretch. Yeah. And yeah. indeed, I did not end up going to that institution. Yeah. But is it fair to say that you looked for something that in mainstream sociology wasn't available anywhere else, really, absolutely. except for places like Birmingham? Yeah, but and absolutely. And I think that was also a question of methodology. It was a question of politics and it was a question of theory. You know, Quite objectively, in conventional academic terms, you could say that cultural studies at Birmingham located itself somewhere midway between English literature and sociology. Yep. And Stuart himself at Birmingham would regularly get very fierce letters from the head of sociology saying, don't think what you're doing is called sociology. It's not for precisely the reasons that you're talking about. You know, they felt it wasn't empirically enough. It wasn't tied up with a kind of micro policy of data. And then he would get letters from the English departments, very sniffy, saying, oh, you are not doing English literature. You know, this is just some film, TV program, soap opera. Yeah, yeah. Uh, having people study audiences of soap operas, listening to them in their living room. Yeah, it's not English. Yeah. So we were always fighting those battles, really. And and I think also what was important, what was really risky at the time was the way in which there was a kind of bricolage effect of theory. You know, Stuart was teaching the MA, he was writing, but he was drawing from the very recently translated or still in French. So Roland Barthes, you know, we were he was reading it, thinking about it and then applying it to media photographs, to the front page. In the, exactly. decoding text. Exactly. Yep. Altusser, I mean, like, Altusser was the gospel at Birmingham. And when I first arrived, I thought, what is, who is Altusser? And people would be, I mean, everybody was sort of young and feeling this was very trendy. So it was very forgivable. People would say, well, the Altusserian position would be, and I was like, what? We should um, probably explain for our listeners. It's, like, it's kind of Marxist ideology. Louis the Marxist philosopher, exactly. Reading of Marxist exactly. Economics and politics. Exactly, but you know, nevertheless, it was very seminal and very influential and very important, and I still use it because it was a theory of ideology, as disconnected or not not emerging right out of uh, the economy. So it was this kind of superstructural, if you remember, medias and ideological state apparatus. False consciousness. And it, well, it allowed you to study ideology in its own world, you know, the world of the women's magazines and how that passed as, as being natural and how ideology established a kind of taken for granted and so on. So that was, you know, so even though at the time I was, oh, sir, and um, 
it was so it was a risky set of methodologies. And then Stuart was also very much, um, you know, looking to continental philosophy, it was called, which, of course, philosophy departments didn't want to know about either. So that was kind of Marxist European philosophy, Gramsci, of course, but mm -hmm. also Palancis and um, yeah. And, and other 60s, 70s French theorists yes, as well. Okay. Exactly. All right. Exactly. So we're talking about those rather than the, you know, the Kant and the Hegel. And yeah, the, no, it yeah. wasn't the Kant and the Hegel. You're absolutely right. It was continental philosophy uh, as well as linguistics and Bakhtan and, you know, and Stuart. And then it became obviously later on, it, there was Derrida and there was Foucault. But that was in the late, in the early 70s to the mid 70s, it was um, uh, the French school, really, I would say. And we've got <clears throat> a bunch of interesting things coming together. So we've got intellectual tools to unpack yes. language and meaning. And popular and vernacular. And, 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 yeah. and popular media yeah. and how those can be read as texts yeah. and how those give exactly. people material exactly. to create their own identities exactly. and sense of about, self. If you think about Dick Hebdige's amazing yeah. book, you know, Subculture, the Meaning of Style, you know, that was exactly what he did. He kind of drew on that and then looked at the world of punk and music around him and being still young, he was going out clubbing <laughs> and then he wrote the book, you yeah. know. And identified something... Yes. that continues to drive culture to this very exactly. day. I mean, the, exactly. the use of subcultural fashion yeah. or music or style Absolutely. or codes continue to drive not just yeah. the identity of subculture, but even of big business. Exactly. I mean, exactly. the very influencers yeah, and creative talents of, you know, used by companies like yeah. Nike or yeah. Adidas or the role Kanye West, yay, had played with Adidas for such a long time, giving Absolutely. subcultural credibility Absolutely. to big business effectively. Dick Hebdige is a classical figure in understanding subculture. Others before him studied those positioned outside society, for example Howard Becker's famous work Outsiders, an ethnography of hip jazz musicians as pitted against their square audiences. But Hebdige, more than others, encapsulates the famous Birmingham dictum of resistance through rituals. He writes, quote, The challenge to hegemony which subcultures represent is not issued directly by them. Rather, it is expressed obliquely in style. The objections are lodged, the contradictions displayed, at the profoundly superficial level of appearances, that is, at the level of signs." Unquote. Subcultures offered symbolic solutions to real-world problems. What can go wrong? A sharp suit might make a marvelous night out, but it's not yet an alternative to gainful employment. Still, there is some freedom here, some so-called agency. Here is Angela on how popular culture is used creatively, productively. And that was always the word that Stuart would use. Like, how do people negotiate yeah. these cultural forums? How do they inhabit them? How do they maneuver around them? And that, I think, also... Um, that that was such a kind of fundamental cultural studies starting point to be interested in in vernacular and in the uh, realm of everyday everyday life. And there's agency there. Yes, was the interesting yes. point, right? So there's completely a lot of power completely. being worked on the individual, of course. Exactly, and we, we can discuss how that manifests yeah. today with much stronger 
algorithms yeah. driving the kinds of yeah. media that you consume and yeah. almost, you know, feeding you certain Absolutely. messages. So, you know, we can talk about the um, evaporation of agency. Yeah. But when you started, there was this negotiation idea, which means people yeah. make sense of stuff in unique ways and there's yeah. more freedom there. Well, I think it was, uh, it, it was always... Um, between the two in my own work. I think there was a level of ambivalence. Also, I think I was able on certain, uh, at certain times to kind of revise my thinking and challenge my thinking. And and on the one hand, there was the, uh, the where I really felt it was important to intervene. And you might say, well, this was me being a, a feminist critique of capitalism, was, let's say, in the world of women's magazines and girls' magazines. There is the sociological question of what is agency and how do we define it? And there was, of course a really strong critique, which I was part of, of the idea of the self-defining individual with his or her choices yeah. that can... And that we were always quite critical, actually, of um, of Tony Giddens in that, reflect, in that respect, even when he theorised a society of individualization. Well, I think we were always saying, well, hold on a minute, what is agency? Um, It's a big question. What is the subject? What is a self? What is this this kind of um, Zygmunt Bauman point of, you know, the, a kind of fiction of the self? This yep. would be a Judith Butler point as well. What is the self? It, it, as though the self can just, like, get out there. And um, Okay, so we were critical of that, but it's also really important to hold on to and to recognise the power of certain forms of agency. For example, how else can we account for the new feminism of the last 10 years yep. if we don't have a theory of agency, if we don't have a theory of anger, of a theory of suddenly young women uh, realizing that they've been misled through this theory of agency and choice. You can do it. You know, you can... And then they leave the, you know, they've done, they've been good girls or they've been top girls, as I, as the book that was translated into German is called Top Girls. They've followed all the rules. They've got their top two, one or their first. They've, you know, they've done everything. And then they move into the world of work and suddenly they see that there is more than a glass ceiling. They see mm. that there is uh, aggression. They, they, they see that there is harassment. They see that they, and so on and so forth. So there's a kind of explosion of agency in the last 10 years. And also, I think that's really marvelous. I mean, one of the things that really has impressed me again in the last 10 years, is the way in which young women have been prepared to kind of break also with tradition, with convention, with taboos. And so suddenly, uh, things that even in my generation, we kind of absorbed and, uh, and, and recognized, but, um, but we didn't absolutely make such a, a public visibility of things like menstruation politics. Yep. And this is a real change. Also in the UK, 
not long ago, there was a, there's been attention to even what's called period poverty, and schools giving out free uh, um, items. Uh, you know, so so that really to me is important. So I like these kind of practical on the ground changes. Yeah, I mean, I I think your work to me is different from some of the, let's say, symbolic readings of fashion and the celebration of the transformative potential of, I don't know, inventing yourself as a punk or mm. mod or yeah. rocker or yeah. what have you. Because on the on the one hand, you redeem agency in things like self-care, confidence, in spaces that have been looked down upon yeah. by the subcultures and some of the subcultural theorists, yeah. like the girls and women's magazines. Yeah. So there's agency there where others would deny it. Yeah. On the other hand, those that were celebrating the mods and the punks and the rockers and mm. the what have you, were really dealing in symbolic solutions to structural problems. So yeah. what I mean by this is there is unemployment. Yeah, There absolutely. are dead-end jobs. Yeah. This isn't really going anywhere. Yeah. Going out on a Saturday night in a yeah. beautiful outfit is a symbolic solution yeah. that lasts for the weekend, and then you're back to square one. The way that I developed those ideas was more in terms of subcultures in the UK, eventually, or not so, creating their own labour markets. Yeah. And putting it in a historical framework, as you say, of like the uh, the 80s and the 90s, uh, before the moment where uh, almost all young people now go to university in the UK, uh, especially young women. Um, and so what we could say is that those subcultures were kind of adventurous, experimental practices in cultural production that generated actually the basis of the creative economy, which then Tony Blair came along 1997. Yes. And thought, great, you know, we've got models, we've got photographers, we've got ID, we've got Face magazine, we've got, of course, all the indie music. Yes. Let's turn it into the creative economy. Yes, let's brand the country yeah, and exactly. let's grow the... Exactly. So, so why don't we talk about this for a moment? Because I think some interesting things are going on here. If we take ourselves back to the mid-90s, we're at a point where the conservative government is on the way out. John Major lost the election. Tony Blair is in power. We see the rise of the city of London, deregulation of capitalism, yeah. money's available. Yeah. People are investing in complicated financial market securities and investment products that generate an abundance of wealth in a very small, concentrated mm. place, London. Mm. Mm. And there's money to fund advertising. There's money to mm. fund the art world. Mm. There's money to invest in fancy restaurants and clubs and bars and galleries. Mm. And so we see this explosion of the creative industries. And for a moment, it looks like these are legitimate career paths and jobs and labor markets for people who love culture. Mm. Mm. And... You, I think, acknowledge that, but then you, when you look closely and scratch the surface, you unpack how this is also imaginary and how some of these realms of production mm. maybe don't offer all the career paths and the prospects that they look like. Is, is that what was your experience? Well, there? I think I think that's right, but then I think one could 
also see it almost more objectively as a way of creating a new economy and of creating a new economy that was inherently precarious uh, based around a lot of uh, self-employment, freelance work, and the, the celebration and the euphoria of the creative industry talk or discourse from 97, uh, especially in the early years of the 2000s, where there were reports where Britain was seen to be in the lead, where Angela Merkel was saying, fantastic, we'll do creative economy as well. Uh, where then there was the publication of the Richard Florida book in 2004, The Creative, creative class. class. So I would say that um, it's not so much that there was activity and celebration and then uh, delusion or disappointment. It was rather that this was the crafting of a kind of uh, cohort that could be seen as pioneers for championing a different kind of working life. And that kind of working life was inherently precarious, flexible. Um, it was also as uh, uh, it was also a way of working that circumvented bureaucracy yes. and that circumvented uh, the old kind of entitlements, workplace entitlements. So it was a wholly new world of work, as Ulrich Beck yes. would put it, abnormal work, yes. as he described it. The creative industries promised an early version of what is now called new work. Work in a self-chosen way. Creatively, work on stuff you love with cool people in a stimulating setting. People worked for agencies, for MTV, for internet companies in this first wave of the late 90s and early noughties tech boom. A concept of the creative class was coined, a group of tastemakers and opinion leaders. They read wallpaper magazine and exchanged boutique hotel tips. They held dinner parties on mid-century Scandinavian furniture. They read nonfiction and had opinions on culture and society. Their life was enriched through art and knowledge, style and music, opening nights, biennales, and being plus one to DJs on guest lists. Was this the way to live? To do well and feel fine? I think that moment that I was responding to, uh, and actually I was responding to it uh, here in Germany. I remember the first version I gave was out in the Bauhaus in Dessau um, to a bunch of architects. And uh, and there was this kind of sense of celebrating the Richard Florida dream of, and actually, I don't want to pour cold water on that dream. You know, I think, again, mm -hmm. um, it was very important, particularly from a feminist perspective, to recognise that, um, and also just from a general perspective, that there was a certain kind of uh, sense in which if I'm working, if I have a long working life, I want it to be enriching and rewarding. And that's a kind of, if you like, the right to enjoyable work yeah. and the right to a certain degree of self-determination. And I felt this very strongly for young women that, you know, um, that there was almost. But then it 
did tip over to a romanticism or a kind of passionate work. And I felt, well, my role there as a scholar and as a sociologist is to say, yes, but you must qu question your own romanticism of work. Is it really, uh, you know, what's going on when you're saying to me, uh, I, I'm willing to do anything to work for Vivian Westwood, including working all through the night for and taking, taking in my sleeping bag and sleeping on her floor the week before the collections because... It's Vivian Westwood and I'm in London. And I would say, OK, um, passionate work, I get it. But let's develop a vocabulary that at least um, attempts to kind of analyse the, the, the structures underpinning this. And actually, when I say I was the wet blanket or the killjoy with the article was that was published was called Club Two Company. Um, and... Even at that time, I was saying, of course, you're you're right, Boris, that most people don't have children when they're in their 20s or don't have um, responsibilities. So there was a kind of mobility there. But some people do. And some people, for example, uh, disadvantaged cohorts like um, you might have uh, black young women who had children earlier. They couldn't go out to Damien Hurst every night of the week, um, partying yeah, or clubbing. Exactly. Um, and likewise, uh, young people do sometimes have caring obligations. So I was, I was pointing to the way in which the mechanisms of social reproduction, even within this euphoric moment, uh, were tilted towards a certain kind of demographic of the footloose and fancy free, as they would say in English, you know, just to be a kind of free agent. You know, I'm in London. I'm a guy. I can go out every night of the week. Um, I can be in Soho House and then I can go straight into the editing suite the next morning, work for 10 hours, uh, you know, for an independent TV production. Yeah. And all I was saying was, and it's something that I continue to say, is, well, A, that there's also a geographical exclusivity there, that you could be just as talented, just as bright, just as motivated, but with living in Glasgow or living in Liverpool, and you don't have those kind of networks. So it was really about the limitations of the network as well, network sociality. Yes. If you remember Andreas Whittle wrote about, if you're an artist like Damien Hirst, working class background from Leeds, and you're already, uh, you, you've, you've developed such an image, you can turn up at a, a launch and you can be drunk and you can be rude and you can be kind of like speaking in a, not in a perfect English way. Um, but that's the exception. If you haven't got the cultural capital or the subcultural capital. So, you know, that was really, they were the kinds of um, points I was wanting to make. And being very honest about those limitations, even as you were celebrating some of the liberties yeah. that come with working in these areas. Yeah. And to this day, we continue to see it. I worked for a fashion retailer and... We had people routinely looking for that fashion buzz. Yes. Be in yeah. a company that competes on engagement and inspiration yeah. that lives the dream. Yeah. And of course, this is also what yeah. powers these yeah, industries in right. the it's end. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is not textile. Yeah. 
this is yeah. fashion and yeah. it's got glamour and it's yeah. got exactly what you described, yeah. those nights out in restaurants yeah. and bars and clubs. Yeah. So it gives people access to a more passionate life, the possibility of becoming, living the life, yeah. all these things. But there are very real limits. And you pointed those out in your work. Some of them are material in terms of how do you look after yourself yeah. as you get a little bit older yeah. or as you require more secure yeah. employment. That's a real limit. And of course, it's extremely exclusive. Yeah. And it doesn't like to talk about those yeah. forms of exclusion. Yeah. But of course, if you don't have the right credentials, yeah. you're not part of that world. But I think what I was also suggesting, even back then in 2001, in this dialogue with kind of Andreas Whittle, was actually there is a downside to this intense individualization, even when it looks successful that um, there are, uh, there is, even for young people, a sense of burnout, a sense of um, mental fragility, uh, having to always have this kind of um, uh, speeded up uh, facade. Um, I felt that there was a kind of, um, yeah, it, it, it took its toll even then. And one could see this. There was a kind of high levels of anxiety or levels of stress or people suddenly disappearing. And then you find out, well, they have to go home and live with their mum and dads for a while. The creative economy offered the keys to a more exciting life world, but it demanded its price in the form of high levels of insecurity and sometimes forms of self-exploitation. We can see it play out to this day. Everyone with a TikTok account is a creator, but fashioning a living in the creative industries remains exciting, but a challenge. Consider the case of podcasting. There are over 4 million podcasts, probably 5 million by now. If you place advertising as a source of income, the going rate is 60 US dollars for 1,000 downloads. So you'd have to be quite a popular podcast to even begin to make a living on those sorts of revenues. Those who do have an active audience, including YouTubers, TikTokers, or Instagram influencers, have to contend with the laws of algorithmic curation, which determines traffic and therefore income. An economy of self-exploitation in exchange for access to exciting projects and people, think runway shows, designers, has given way to a content economy where the more spectacular, more attention-grabbing content tends to win. Provocation, polarization, even disinformation are logical outcomes of this. As are extreme representations of the body, over-sexualization, anything basically, that shocks and gives pause to our absent-minded scrolling. We are now living in a world where, you know, we were discussing earlier, if we look at some of the social media spheres, we have these hyper-stereotypical beauty ideals that are resurfacing. They're pushing. Still don't go away. They yeah. don't go away. In fact, yeah. they're, if anything, they're, they're sort of hyper-accelerated. I'm thinking now of my children play with Snapchat yeah. and Instagram, and there yeah. are filters that, that kind of put your, yeah. you know, put your beauty ideals yeah. into overdrive. Yeah. And it's a kind of arms race. Yeah beauty contest and you can't even climb down from that yeah. back to normal so yeah. unclear how to restore yeah. a sense of normality and it's incredibly difficult i think it's particular i mean this is also so gendered you know i think i i've got two grandsons and you know questions of like you know they like style 
but they're not interested in, you know, like even in hairstyles. Whereas the girls of the same age, 13, 14, are already aware of like, um, you know, yeah, body and appearance and size and yeah, it's just endless. That doesn't change. But the endless or infinite availability of content surely also surfaces useful knowledge, including a sheer endless repertoire of know-how on how to do well and feel fine. Indeed, what about the proliferation of well-being content? Here is Angela again with a more critical take on the influencers promoting wellness and well-being. Helpful or power over the self? This period that we're talking about let's say the last two decades in the UK, the way in which the media is led by the individualization effect of celebrity culture, uh, of, of the, these influencers, these names, these kind of, you know, TV presenters, and, uh, and how they then brand themselves in terms of wellness or beauty. Yeah. And it's very interesting that there is a shift now away from just beauty to wellness yes but wellness involves a kind of punishing routine of the body and also body normativity that is to say it's the same kind of body whether you're black or white or asian or it's actually an intensely narrow field of bodily um difference that gets kind of compressed right? compressed yeah. and that is then what it is and of course you know there are then there are good debates about being positive about bodily difference but actually this kind of mainstream all the time and it's often it's narrativized so it's like the what used to be the world of magazines in the worst sense now has become so widespread across social media across so it's always narrativized of like, you know, weight gain, weight loss, finding myself, yes. you know, this kind of well, therapeutic discourse. I mean, let's talk about that because, I mean, this, this podcast, it's called Doing Well, Feeling Fine. And the goal is to find ways to live in a way that's healthy, yeah. in, in a way that's um, fulfilled, yeah. in a way that's focused on social relations and interaction with others, not yeah. just not just self-orientation yeah. all the time. Yeah. But if you look critically at some of the regimes of self-improvement, mm. what is going on here? Number exactly. one, there is an incessant, non-stop focus on the self. Yeah. It is this kind of reflexive folding back on its yeah. me, 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 all yeah. the time, recursive. Yeah. It's, and now I need to think about my mindfulness. Yeah. And now I need to think yes, about exactly. my body. And now I need to think exactly. about my nutrition and my supplements. Yeah. And my, so there's obviously a positive thrust in there that's worth celebrating people take accountability yeah. Yeah. for their well-being yeah. great yeah. now if you just look at it from a um a, from a point of view of governance and self-governance and power over the self we see this internalization of this yeah. apparatus of self-control yeah. i will count my steps i will count my sleep yeah. i will measure my sleep exactly. in a with a grade yes. and and will grade myself on yes. how well i slept okay. oh and here's the impact monitoring. of a glass of wine yeah. and yeah. i'm monitoring it and yeah. so on. so there is this like hardcore power over yeah. the self that creates yeah. a sort of non-stop pressure yeah. what's your sociological reflection on this movement good bad good with the bad how how do you see it because it's as heightened as it never was before right well 
I, abs I mean, what's my take on it? Well, inevitably, there is a degree, as you've just indicated, a degree of ambivalence because uh, certain kinds of ways of looking after the self are clearly uh, beneficial. And that the and we all know that, for example, that people who are able to look after themselves live longer, uh, uh, need less health, uh, Ill, uh, you know, uh, are less of a unhealthy. Of healthcare system. Uh, there is an obesity crisis in yes. the UK. You don't see it here in Germany. Yeah. I mean, you know, you just don't. Of course, there are some obese people, but if you walk into any shopping centre in the UK, you cannot help but see that there is an obesity crisis. How has that developed? You know, what is the, is that the the consequence of low paid wage stagnation in the service sector uh, a kind of sense of hopelessness because it has become and this is one of the the counter effects of individualization actually the retraction and the reduction of public facilities for let's say training have meant that there is a class a cohort of people who have never had access to improve their job prospects you know especially if they have uh, come from uh, poorer or working class backgrounds and then had children so that you might be and I think I talk about it in the resilience book as a kind of triple incarceration effect if you're working in a packing factory for JD sports you're working long hours irregular hours and there are very few internal pathways for progression in the way that there used to be there used to be in jobs day release there still is in Germany Yes, this is good. You know, so if you're a working class man or a woman, you could go off to college one day a week. That no longer exists. Um, and then even night school is now fee based. Mm. So it used to be that the ambitious working class young woman might have a couple of kids or her male counterpart might have three kids, um, but they could do night school. You could do the open university. Now that's all fee-based. How do you get that? And how do you get the money and the time if you're on a zero hours contract working in a supermarket? Let's say you're working in car, you know, and you're on zero hours. So there's a kind of accumulation effects that make people unhealthy. <laughs> You know? Well, plus, plus, let's not forget on the consumer so that's side. That's a sociological uh, argument, absolutely. you know. I mean, and 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 now you you you're getting at the conditions that lead that ladder up to unhealthy manifestations of that. You know, on the one hand, we have this regime of self control yeah. in the healthy manifestations, yeah. and now we have this other system that produces the unhealthy manifestations. And I would layer on top of that the availability of cheap and simple pleasures that hit the brainstem right in the center of Absolutely. its pleasure center Absolutely. with you know cheap food. high calorie dense yeah. foods yeah. that's that are satisfying admittedly yeah. and the same then not just in nutrition but in the world of media with the same kind of yeah. you know highly <laughs> so sugary Britain content in social media like this window for other european cultures say you know, what a disaster <laughs> So where does that leave us? Angela and my conversation started with the academic study of subculture. 
Dick Hebditch famously wrote about diffusion and defusion as subcultural styles and codes became more popular, but also watered down. They were turned into products, packaged and distributed, and not just as sneakers, jeans, hoodies, and the right shades, but also as content and stories. These stories remain appealing and continue to enchant. In the form of newness and hype, they drive our consumer choices, and sometimes our careers, with jobs and alternative lifestyles in the creative industries. And for sure, the creative class remains appealing. An outsized share of young adults still seeks to become YouTubers, vloggers, influencers, and so on. By some accounts, more than half of surveyed respondents prefer one of these roles to more traditional jobs in medicine, finance, or the law. But what I recommended to my kids? A life enriched by art, fashion, music, and creative expression? For sure. A daily battle with the algorithm for views and clicks and likes? Not so sure. See you next week. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you like the show, please recommend the podcast to a friend. Give us a rating and a quick review wherever you listen to it. This helps others who might be interested to find the show. If there's a topic we should absolutely cover or a guest you'd recommend, please send us your ideas and feedback to dwff.pod at gmail.com. 